Lucy, welcome to Lessons from Leaders. We are so glad that you are here. Um, and just for everyone to know, this is being recorded in August of 2020, so we are very much looking at the impact of the crisis is the COVID-19 and Black Lives Matter, the killing of George Floyd, and how it impacts organizations and leaders. So just to, it's very topical. And Kathy, I, you and I had a great previous conversation so about some of your thinking and how you're leading through crisis. And so I'm so glad that you're here to share with us your, um, your experiences and your perspectives. So thank you for joining us. And thank you so much for having me. I'm sure it will be fun. It will be. So buckle your seatbelt. To start with, can, why don't you give us, so you are the CEO for Helen Keller International. And um, I didn't tell you this earlier, but I, when I was a little, small little Peace Corps volunteer, I admired the work that you all did. So I've been mm -hmm. admiring you from afar for quite a while. And why don't you just tell us how you got here? Because you have a very unusual trajectory. Yes, I started out as a dancer and then went to college as a double major in modern dance and French. So not what you would think would put me on this track, but what happened was I went to college in the 70s and by the time I got out of school, it was the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. And I was working in the dance world, which was devastated by AIDS. Mm -hmm. I lost so many friends and colleagues and that was a wake up call for me and I thought I have to do more then put on performances, then be a producer. Uh, and that led to a switch to working in HIV and AIDS, which put me on a public health and service path. And I was very lucky at that time that an opportunity came up to run an international organization which focused on blindness prevention. I had never wanted to work internationally. I didn't have the travel bug, mm. uh, but I became a fast convert. I loved the intellectual challenges of working internationally, working in a matrixed world, having so many different points of views uh, to take into account in being a leader. And then when the opportunity came up at Helen Keller, which combined my HIV AIDS experience because I worked for a nutrition organization within the AIDS sector and my blindness prevention experience, it was a perfect fit. And how long have you been there? 15 years. Since you were a small child also. Hardly, I look young for my age. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that story because it's, it's it's for me, it's like you followed your passion or your purpose, not the, I don't know what it is, not the career, but the purpose. Is that, is that fair to say it that way? Yeah, I mean, I think I followed my heart. Followed your heart. What to say, okay. it was certainly not a normal path. And what I felt was I have such a managerial DNA and those were skill sets that were transferable, though it was easier for me to know that than to convince my first switch. So leaving the arts world to work in HIV and AIDS, I actually did some volunteer work um, for the first women's center for HIV in New York City so I could get some street cred, if you will, changing fields. So it took a while to make that transition. It always made sense to me though. But I, I love that, though, because in so many of our interviews, our guests, we see that people didn't decide when they were 22 that they were going to do this, and then they became the CEO of that same, in that same profession. It's like the twists and turns 
and what following your heart looks like. I wanted to be a French teacher. And where that still lingers is we do much of our work in Francophone Africa. So that comes in very handy. And, and the dance part, how does that come in? I no longer dance. I'm extremely physical and athletic. I'm a big workout maven. And that's certainly a part of staying healthy and sane and having work-life balance. I travel a lot, or I used to pre-COVID. And it's always important to me that I get my exercise in, not just for physical reasons, but for my mental stamina. That's good. So let's talk about the one of the main things I did want to focus on with you was um, responding or how you're leading right now in the crises. And particularly, I know that you have been, uh, the words you use were energized mm -hmm. with the um, reawakening or uh, of the social injustices. So can you talk about why this is energizing to you? Sure. And I think it's energizing on two levels, because it's an opportunity for personal growth, which I love, and it's an opportunity for professional growth in my role as leader of the organization. And certainly it's not as if I didn't think about and care about these issues before, but with the killing of George Floyd, it just put me on a whole new level, a path of self-knowledge. I read everything I could. I had never read the new Jim Crow. Mm. I read White Fragility, uh, White Supremacy and Me. I've just read Cast. I watched Ava DuVernay's 13th. It was just a really deep dive. I had lots of conversations with colleagues, and I feel very blessed that I had colleagues of color who were willing to be really honest with me. And I'm almost embarrassed to admit it, but it was the first time I actually heard people talk at length to me about there's never a moment that they're not aware of the color of their skin, mm -hmm. that they don't go out of their house self-conscious about what they're wearing, what they look like. And to me, that call to action, both in my personal life, but as a leader where I have a great platform to make a change, to look at how does Helen Keller recruit staff? How do we evaluate staff? How do we promote them? What do we mean when we say cultural fit? Just to me, it's really energizing to have that opportunity to kind of make up for past wrongs and pull back all the layers to see how we could be better. Uh, it's just been very exciting, both the introspection and bringing colleagues along. We've set up an anti-racist working group and the dialogues are so rich and so useful. Um, that said, I have to say, I'm talking particularly about our staff in the United States. Most of our staff is in Africa and Asia, and it resonates very differently. Uh, resonates much less so in Asia, and in Africa, it's less about Helen Keller as an organization and what are the inherent racial biases we may not be aware of. It's more about foreign aid and the colonialism of foreign aid. And I'm glad that our work is very much behind the scenes in building the capacity and providing technical assistance. And it's very much about listening to people on the ground and what they want and understanding they have the solutions, not us. So we have the right gestalt, if you will. Mm -hmm. But I do think all of us who lead INGOs need to take a look at colonialism and what is the aid infrastructure and are we doing good and what can we do better? And I love how you are 
it energized you, it is energizing to you and, and looking forward to what you can learn and, and change and make it make a difference. So, so that's interesting to me because it didn't send you into the guilt place. So I think that's important. Mm. Um, and then you talked about the processes, structure, things that are happening in the organization and what you've read and things. But I'm wondering personally, like how do you, what are you doing differently? Is there any different way that you're interacting or, or because if we talk about unintentional vices, how do, how are you, how are you being with that? It makes me think of a funny story because, you know, candidly, as this all started in my kind of awakening or further awakening, it made me want to smile and say hello to every black person mm -hmm. I saw on the street. And as I talked to black colleagues and black friends, they said, indeed, they have noticed they go to the supermarket to buy pretzels and some white person comes up to them and goes, hi, how are you today? And so everybody, you know, it's just so fascinating to hear from colleagues that this is their experience, that more white people are reaching out to them in ways that may feel phony to them, but they're definitely noticing that mm -hmm. change in behavior. Um, so for me, I think personally, it's just more of a heightened awareness. Uh, it hasn't changed my lifestyle. It's really mm -hmm. affected my leadership, though, and my view about succession planning within the organization, procurement practices. How do we choose our vendors? Uh, we have an affirmative action plan. And according to that, we're doing okay, which says to me there's probably something a little wrong with the affirmative action plan. Uh, but so all kinds of exciting challenges and still the, the discovery process. There are some easy things to do early on. You know, we made Juneteenth a holiday for our staff. Mm -hmm. We formed this anti-racist working group. We did a session on how we determine salary bans and what people are paid. We are going to do a session on the results of our affirmative action plan and share those broadly. We're opening up dialogues about colonialism in aid. So you can tell I'm very action oriented. I, right. you know, I'm introspective, but then I, I turn that into moving ahead. And of course, I'm not doing this alone. I've got great colleagues who have embraced this. Um, the, I had a thought, which, and unfortunately, not went out of my head. And here we are being recorded, and I can't remember what I was going to ask you about. And it was a really, really good question too. <laughs> really, that's what really. Oh, I know what it was. Just telling the the our our podcast listeners and viewers that um, Kathy, when I this is a story about you, Kathy. When I contacted her to be on the podcast, to your credit, you said I would like to give my space to a leader of color, um, and I said, well, it's not an either or. So, but I wanted to point out that it, in some ways that is a behavior that you you stepped right up before we had even begun. And I don't get credit for that idea because it's a leader of color who <laughs> suggested that. Uh, who, who we will get on the podcast. Yeah. Great. Um, also, we were talking, I'd like to touch on, where shall we go? Ideas, thoughts that you would have for yourself, your younger self. Um, now that you have been in the leadership position for quite a few years now. What do you know now that you wish you knew then? I think the most important thing, easier said than done, is I would say to myself, listen to your gut. When you feel those little red flags waving, listen to it. 
and not, don't just listen to it and then discount it. Take it seriously. Um, I've had my share of hiring mistakes, and I knew when I was making the decision, those little flags were waving. Um, so, you know, do the right thing by yourself and listen to yourself. You're, you know, you're your own best compass. And then probably on a more pedestrian level, but once you're in a leadership role and you're CEO, spend a lot of time with your board. You know, the only reason CEOs are really unhappy or leave jobs comes from the board or whether or not they have a good partnership and relationship. So it's really worth spending time building those relationships and having good and honest dialogue. And I would say related to that humility, humility goes a really long way. One thing that has done very well by me is I'm always willing to take it on the chin. Mm. And as a very recent example that comes back to your questions about Black Lives Matter, like many CEOs, I sent a message to staff, uh, one to all staff, one to U.S. staff after George Floyd was murdered. And I wrote from the heart and I wrote about the pain I was feeling about the wake up call. And actually there was a complaint about my message. And it first went to a whistleblower hotline, which malfunctioned. So then it came to me, which was very fortunate. And it pointed out a couple of things in my message that were perceived as offensive or out of touch. And I learned a lot from that. I wrote back to the whistleblower. I apologized. I talked about what I learned. I made no excuses. And then I sent a message to the entire staff of the organization apologizing and giving credit to somebody who came forward to point out what they thought was tone deaf in my message. And it ended up being a really good first step because I think staff in the organization saw they had a leader who was willing to say, I messed up, I've got a lot to learn, this is a process for me too, and I accept your guidance, I accept your pushback and help me bring us forward. Um, and I ended up having a nice exchange with the whistleblower as well. I think that is such an important story. Um, it is the humility which you mentioned and you're being authentic and you're being vulnerable on those and courage. So those to me are the four what helps the leader be so effective. And you said to everybody, it is okay. You showed them it is okay to call me on my stuff. It, it strengthens us. Um, it gives, that gives me goosebumps. And, and we so, so many see people's leaders shy away from that because they're afraid they'll look weak or, and it's just the opposite. It's the opposite of what you would think. It, it's a, so it's sure. interesting because, yeah, you know, please. one of the, the questions you had asked me when we had our initial chat is, you know, what I've learned and how I need to be present as a leader, particularly during COVID. And there is this balance because the feedback I got that resonated the most or that was strongest from staff was when we have our virtual cafes and our get togethers on Zoom, how important it is to them to see me smile. So it is the balance of seeing that the titular leader of your organization is smiling as whole and as there, yet at the same time feels pain and is vulnerable. So I'm not going to lie. Uh, you know, my biggest challenge is I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know what's going to happen with COVID. I don't know what's going to happen in Africa. There was an article in The Economist a couple of weeks ago about COVID in Afri Africa, and it was called One Million and Not Counting. Mm. 
And that keeps me up at night. That's what I'm afraid of. Africa is reopening. We're getting permission from donors to do our programs. And I'm waiting for that first shoe to fall. I'm waiting for those numbers to go up. And there is no crystal ball. So I can't lie to staff and say, I know. I can talk about the best way to be prepared for various eventualities. Uh, so it's, it is a combination of being confident and smiling, but also being vulnerable and human. What do you think the smiling... Why the smiling? Is it why? Is it because you're not always happy? So what do you understand the request to smile more means? And I don't think they're asking for artificial smiles. I think what the smile sends to them is a sense of confidence that if I'm not freaking out, things are going to mm. be okay. Mm. You know, and more than a few staff have said this to me, how important that one thing is. So that was kind of new information for me. That's, I, I like that I have not heard that before. It also shows a certain warmth and approachability, which I wonder might also. And I like that I'm calm, I am not freaking out. See, I can smile, even though I don't have a crystal ball and I don't know where we're going. Yeah. You know, one of the other things that we've been doing uh, related to COVID, but more to Black Lives Matter, uh, we have a great performance management system called Conversations to Connect, and we've pivoted that system and asked staff to reach out to staff members mm. that they don't normally speak with and ask them, how has your life changed since the murder of George Floyd? And we will have an all-staff meeting in September, a U.S. staff meeting, where people can anonymously share what they learned from those conversations. There's a great tool called Mentimeter where staff can answer questions anonymously. And what I'm hearing just anecdotally is about great conversations people are having. So a way to bridge the gap during COVID when we're all working remotely uh, at the same time is to create awareness and advance an anti-racism agenda. I'm so enjoying how much you have made this crisis an opportunity and um, how it has energized you and I imagine energized your staff and the organization. I think that's not always easy to do. And you, well, need, yeah. You know, I was just saying the same sense COVID was a wake up call. We mm -hmm. have pivoted our programs and they will never go back to how they were. You know, it's made us look at things differently. We've all known that vulnerable populations where there's inadequate health care are going to be the hardest hit. We've known how important gender dynamics are within that. And I think what comes out of this for us is realizing you really need to embrace the whole health system and that infrastructure in a country. We focused on blindness prevention. We focused on malnutrition and child health but you can only go so far unless you look at the system in an integrated approach. We're lucky that we've got a strategic planning process starting uh, in the next couple of weeks because it's a great time now to look at the lessons learned from COVID and how do we pivot. And again, I'm not doing this alone. I have a great head of programs, a great program team, a great new head of the program committee of our board. So we've got some courageous and, and great minds who will put, put ourselves to this task. Which is... That, and you and I talked about that earlier, like how it's not just you, it's having the right people and a team that you can trust and that's strong. And um, No, I know. And, you know, people yeah. will often say you must love your job because you do so much good in the world. 
And that is definitely a great joy of my job, but the team that I work with is absolutely the top joy. I just have an amazing, wonderful team. And that makes every day, even when the challenges seem insurmountable, I'm not in it alone, I'm doing it with them. And it's a great feeling. So, you know, advice to an up and coming leader, choose your team wisely. Don't hire carbon copies of yourself and choose wisely. And if it takes time, if you have to interview people three, four times, we often refer to our interview process as death by interview. But you really want to know on both sides that you're making the right choice. So what is wisely? It means you said not, not a carbon copy of yourself. What else is choose wisely? You know, I'm very type A and I always used to hire for skills and not culture. Mm. And there's been a lot of pushback in the literature on that, that skills can be learned. You can train people. Culture is harder. Um, So in our interview process, um, we're very clear the skills that we need, but we're also very clear about what the work ethic is in the organization, what a normal day is like, how we interact with each other, what are our values, what's most important. Uh, And then the challenge is listening to that voice. And we have a fabulous VP of human resources and that's what she is attuned to in every interview. So she surfaces things that some of us may not see when we're doing a skills-based interview. Um, But I think you know, the more diverse skills and approaches in a team, the more effective you're going to be. I am very linear. I'm all about getting from here to here. How am I going to do it? And I need relational people around me. Mm. The best fundraisers are relational. And to me, they may think like this, and that may be hard because I want to go here. But you need it. You need all different kinds of points of view. You need bolder folks. You need some slightly more risk-averse folks so that you get all those different points of view, so you get a maximum decision. And I want to underline the hiring for a cultural fit, that that's, that is, you know, that's gets, that's so important because skills you can learn. And uh, as long as it doesn't mean hire for someone who looks and sounds and talks just like me. And that's the next thing that I was where I was going to, because we actually do like to work with people that are like us. It's hard. And I'm not speaking just ethnically or culturally. I'm saying, you know, however you, your style, mm-hmm. it's hard to make that stretch. So you're linear. Sometimes it might be hard for you to work for those that are not. And how do you expand your style so you can see that they, they bring value too? Yeah. But you, you know, I think you step back and see, what the value add is of those different styles. And mm. it's not that I adjust my style, I just leave room for that style. And you know, all managers, you manage everybody differently. You interact with people differently. There's no one set way that I am a supervisor. That's good. I like you know, the same with working with the board of trustees. You know, Everyone on the board is different and I relate differently with different board members. Thank you, Kathy. So we are up. On our time, is there anything that we didn't talk about that you want to touch on? I guess I would just say, you know, one concern that I know colleagues share is where is the next crop of up and coming leaders in this world? It probably seems like a very challenging uh, career for folks. And 
it's such an exciting, alive kind of work to be doing that I just hope there are more people who get interested in it and, and want to go for it. So she's talking to you people. Yes. <laughs> Come on out. Yes, we need, we need them to be, we need to see who they are and, and help them nurture them also. Thank you, Kathy, so much for your time and for sharing your stories and your um, and being being humble and 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 vulnerable with us here too. So thank you. Thank you for making it a good space to do that in. <laughs> <laughs>